Welcome to Study, Grow, Know, where we discuss theology, prophecy, and current political issues from a conservative biblical perspective. Here's your host, Dr. Fred DeRuvo. Hi, welcome back. This is uh, Dr. Fred, Study, Grow, Know, and you're listening to another episode. We're going to continue in Daniel 7 and Revelation 13, and this is part four. So if we get back to that with this particular episode, it brings us closer to the seven heads of the beast, which also has 10 kings and 10 crowns of Revelation 13. So my goal is to make these articles easy to understand without getting so bogged down in minutia. And let's face it, that can happen with a number of books of the Bible, Daniel, Revelation, Ezekiel, etc. We can spend a whole lot of time digging into every small aspect presented in the text. And that's good. That's great for deep Bible study and deep textbooks and commentaries. But for our purposes, I want to provide overviews as much as possible with detail where needed. Now, in order to delve into and hopefully uncover the identities of the seven heads, if possible, we need to backtrack just a bit by going back to Daniel 2. But first, let's reference the biblical text uh, from Revelation 13, 1-4. It's New King James Version. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns, and on his ten horns crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast." So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Well, the overall picture here is John standing on the sand near the ocean or the sea. As he does, he sees a beast rising out of the sea in front of him. And he can't really describe it except to say that it has seven heads, ten horns, ten crowns on the ten horns, and a blasphemous name on the seven heads. Now, what this beast actually looked like is anyone's guess. It seems clear, though, that John was having a very difficult time describing it, and likely God presented the vision in a way that would make some sense to John. And I believe in this particular vision, John actually saw a beast that had seven heads, ten horns, and ten crowns on the horns, along with a blasphemous name. And it must have looked extremely odd to him, because notice he does not compare it to any living animal that he was aware of. Now, obviously, the beast represents something, as all symbols in Scripture represent something. And our job is to figure it out. This is done most effectively by looking to the other parts of Scripture, if the meaning or symbol is not given in that text that highlights, you know, the symbol itself. So the first four verses uh, provide clues as to the meaning of this beast. It's a metaphor, symbol, or picture that allows John to remember and describe to us, his readers. Now, bearing this in mind, does this mean that the coming beast that will be on the scene will actually be some type of horrible-looking, ferocious animal that has seven heads, ten horns, ten crowns on the horns? That can't be due to the fact that verse 2 describes this beast as part leopard, part bear, part lion. And we, we see the seven heads and ten horns. That kind of makes it pretty strange indeed. A weird-looking creature, isn't it? 
So if every symbol used in scripture is either explained in that text near the introduction of that symbol or somewhere else in scripture, then we can find the meaning. And that's our job. Ultimately, regardless of the individual human being that God chose to write down specific parts of his word, we need to remember that God wrote all of it ultimately. In essence, the Bible is God's book to humanity, and it doesn't matter if we are reading Genesis, Daniel, Revelation, or some other book. If we allow the Bible to interpret itself based on the entirety of God's word, we will rarely we will rarely go wrong. So the leopard, bear, lion, where have we seen those particular animals with reference to specific beasts before? Well, from Daniel 2, which we've already discussed in this series, but it's helpful to remind ourselves. The lion in Daniel 2 represented the Babylonian kingdom. The bear represented the Medo-Persian kingdom, according to Daniel 2, and the leopard represented the Grecian kingdom. Now, we know that John is referring to these same beasts that Daniel originally referred to, but with the addition of several facts here in Revelation. God, through John, is providing that additional information, but first reminds us of those previous beasts that represented various kingdoms. So we see there is an automatic connection. Just as Daniel saw in his visions and interpretations of the dream presented to King Nebuchadnezzar, the beasts were not real beasts, were they? But they were merely representative of the kingdoms that God would allow to come into fruition from Daniel's perspective and then get gobbled up by the next kingdom. Recall that the final kingdom that Daniel saw was terrifying. He noted it was a mix of iron and clay, but there was no specific animal associated with that particular empire, which ultimately then became the Roman Empire. Now, we do the same thing with teams today, don't we? Sport teams. You've got the Eagles. You've got all kinds of animal names for teams. But obviously, the players are simply represented by that name, but they themselves are not Eagles. They are human beings. And this is what Daniel and John are doing here. So it's clear that John is referring to the kingdoms first made known to us by Daniel in Daniel 2. And later in Daniel 9, we read about the quote-unquote times of the Gentiles, which is the length of time that these Gentile kingdoms would reign, and that's including Rome. Notice verse 3 above the text I read. It says this, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. Now, in my view, this is referring to the very last head of this beast, which is the Roman Empire, and part of it anyway. Here is where it gets a bit interesting. There are seven heads that John sees when this beast comes up out of the sea, right? Well, when Daniel saw this beast, it didn't have seven heads, but it did have ten toes. And it was basically uh, a statue, it was reminiscent of a man divided into sections. So it did have 10 toes. Well, this specific beast now has seven heads and 10 horns with a crown on each horn. Therefore, in my view, these seven heads all belong to the final beast, which is representative of the various stages that Rome went through as it began to grow into an empire until it will eventually become the final revived Roman Empire still in front of us. Now, numerous historians and biblical scholars believe that the Roman Empire went through a variety of stages before it came to its zenith during the time of Jesus. It was unlike, unlike the three kingdoms that came before it. So even after Jesus, the Roman Empire continued to morph and change. 
eventually it divided into two parts, the East and the West. That was the first major, huge, big crack in its unity and its ultimate fall. But let's take a moment to consider the possible meaning of the seven heads of Rome. Now, there are some commentators who, who biblical commentators, scholars, conservative and otherwise, who take this reference as an allusion to the seven hills upon which Rome was built. Now, I tend to agree with Dr. Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum, who labels the individual seven heads in the following way to show how the Roman Empire developed over a very long period of time. The first head, he says, represents the Tarquin kings from 753 to 510 BC. The second head would be the counselors from 510 to 594 BC. The third head would be the plebeians or dictators, uh, 494 to 390 BC. The fourth head would be the Republicans or Decemvirs, or otherwise known as the Oligarchy of Ten. 390 to 59 BC, and now we're coming up to Jesus' time, and then the fifth head would be the triumvirate, 59 to 29 to 27 BC. Now, the sixth head is where, uh, during the time when Jesus was born, this would be called the United Stage. This is the actual Roman Empire, represented by their imperialism and their structure and their total strength. Strong as iron from 63 BC to AD 285. And then that started to break up into the two division stage. This is still all under the sixth head. The two division stage, the east-west balance of power, which was AD 364 to present. And the reason he says present is because of the EU. And it really never went out of existence. Rome Empire never did. So now it's kind of trying to be resurrected or represented at least by the present current EU. And then after the two division stage, there was the one world government stage. Now I said there was, that's still in the future. Toes of iron and miry clay, that's future. And then the 10 stage kingdom, also future. This is where the 10 horns, the kings, will rise up and take their place for a short while, as we're told in Revelation. And then three of them will be uprooted. You know, when you pull a plant up by its root, what happens to it? It usually dies. And so this is probably referring to their deaths. Um, and then the seven remaining will submit to this eighth horn. And that's also prophesied in Daniel. And the eighth horn is the Antichrist. So that leads to the seventh head, which is the Antichrist stage, which is absolute imperialism. Now, the little horn is the eleventh horn, and it becomes the eighth after uprooting three of the ten original kings. Now, let's not forget that Antiochus Epiphanes IV came out of the remaining four parts of the Grecian Empire. Remember, after Alexander died, his four top generals basically took over the empire and broke it into four separate parts. Well, during Epiphany IV's career, Rome had begun taking on quite a bit of strength, so that when Epiphanes IV wanted to try to invade and conquer Egypt, he was basically warned off by Roman people. 
Roman officials said, don't even try. So this was roughly in 168 BC, and this would have been at the Republicans or Decemvirs stage in Rome's development, which was the fourth head. Now, Rome was becoming a force to be reckoned with at that point. And by the way, after um, Antiochus Epiphanes was warned off by Rome, he headed back north to Syria. And then on his way, he stopped in at Jerusalem. And there he murdered a lot of Jews and desecrated the Holy of Holies, the whole temple. And he did that by offering a, a pig on the, sacri- on the uh, sacrificial altar. And then some um, historians also, also say that he brought in a statue of Zeus and put his own face as a mask over that of Zeus. So it's an interesting thing. But at that point, Rome already had enough power to warn Epiphanes off, and he obeyed. Didn't like it, but he did it. Now, all of the above heads, all seven of them, according to Fruchtenbaum and others, all deal with the Roman Empire. As I previously mentioned, the Roman Empire, which went out of existence as far as the history books tell us, but will be resurrected in some form by the coming Antichrist at the seventh head stage. What is interesting about the Roman Empire is that unlike the three previous kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, The Roman Empire went through a very long, convoluted development before it finally had come to the sixth head, starting with the United Stage. And that was all of them together, and it was basically the Roman Empire at that point, imperialism strong as iron. And uh, this, this is Rome. This was Rome at the height of its power, and then Rome's fall after that took many centuries. As the Roman Empire began its very long decline, certainly longer than the previous three beasts, it morphed into other things, then weakened into its quote-unquote death. However, it's very interesting to note that today's European Union covers much of the same geographical area as the old Roman Empire did. So it's very, very clear that people want to resurrect the old Roman Empire. Though the EU is dealing with internal pressures from individual countries so that we don't know what the final result of all this will be immediately, it seems clear to me that once the Antichrist takes his place, ten kings will already be in their place of rule, and their rule will be relatively short, which is why the scriptures in Revelation tell us that they will rule for a little while. So that's part of the... 10 kingdom stage, the one world government stage. Once we become one as a world, then the 10 kingdom stage will happen so that the world is easier to monitor and control. And of course, that's all going to be done with 5G and 6G surveillance, etc., everything else that goes with it. And right now, I think what we're seeing in society is the globalist increasing grip of power over all society. So when the United States falls, the world is going to be not that far behind. So we're kind of standing in the way here. But please note that there are numerous other opinions, and I want to emphasize that as to what these heads in Revelation 13, 1-4 represent. But to me, this one that I just expressed makes the most sense. Now, in the end, does it really matter? Not really. Ultimately, the Bible will be fulfilled in the way God intends it to be fulfilled. There is coming a one-world government. There is coming a time when Satan, through his spiritual son, Antichrist, will step up to the plate and will rule this world. He wants to fulfill his 
promise that he first promised in Isaiah 14, I will be like the Most High. God's going to give him that opportunity. He's going to come out in the open through his spiritual son, Antichrist. And then when Jesus returns physically, Antichrist is going to be the first one to suffer the death blow from Christ himself. And that will be the entire world, the entire creation will witness that. That's why that's going to happen. So I believe the final kingdom in uh, scripture that's highlighted here will be a revision and a strengthening of the Roman Empire taking advantage of all of today's modern technology. If we can imagine what Rome was able to accomplish hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago without modern technology, imagine what the new Rome will achieve today. The various stages of Rome's development as seen in the seven heads that I just mentioned seems to adequately, in my mind, explain what John was seeing. But let's not forget also just an added thing here. The Vatican is the headquarters of Roman Catholicism and it's in Rome, Italy. They have their own country, one square mile. Now, understanding what the current Pope is busy pushing makes one wonder if this or a future Pope will become the false prophet spoken of in Revelation 13. I don't know, but I do know that there are an awful lot of Catholics who completely disagree with this particular pope. So we'll see what happens. But in the end, when Antichrist resurrects the ancient Roman Empire and all its absolute imperialistic ferociousness, is it any wonder that the entire world will marvel and follow the head of this particular beast? Verse 3, the head at that time will be Antichrist. Though many have tried to recreate Rome in modern times, no one has been successful. The EU is the latest version of this attempt, and it doesn't appear to be coalescing that well. With some countries, they want out, others want in, still others don't want to follow all the EU's rules, but they're happy to take their money. There is a disproportion of sentiments, and it's not completely coalescing. That's interesting. It is not fully united, but in some form will be once Antichrist comes on the scene and is allowed to gain his place in future history. Well, we will consider more of Revelation 13 in our next segment. And I do so much appreciate you joining me today. And until we meet again, I pray that God will open your eyes to show you how blessed you are in him. You've been listening to Study, Grow, Know with Dr. Fred DeRuvo. Please join us each week for new broadcasts that deal with theology, prophecy, and political issues from a biblical, conservative perspective. 